we've seen a good news and bad news. And the good news was that Israel was still going to go to the promised land. Even after the great sin of the golden calf. The bad news was that God was not going to go with them. God had said, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up in your midst. Because you are a stiff-necked people. Lest I consume you on the way. You know, it was just too dangerous in God's holiness. God might have to destroy the Israelites for their sin. And so basically, the Israelites were on the verge of having no hope. This is where they were. And when they heard this, they cried tears of repentance. They tore off their ornaments, this jewelry and other finery that were really emblems still of idolatry. And so now there were signs of visible brokenness. Talk about openness and brokenness. They really had it at this point. And they were waiting to see what God would do. Would he go with them? Or would he send them off on their own? So they were at the point. Was there any hope? And while the Israelites were waiting to find this out. Moses went to meet with God. So outside of the camp. Moses had pitched a tent where he could meet with God, talk things over with God. And as Moses went out, the Israelites stood up by their own tents and watched to see what would happen. The glory of God came down in a pillar of cloud, and they knew that their mediator was meeting with God. Now, something fascinating happens at this point in Exodus. We're up to verse 12 in chapter 33. And what's happened now is that we are allowed to peer inside the tent of meeting. We're allowed to overhear this conversation between Moses and God. And this this conversation is kind of broken up into three sections. Uh, You've got verses 12 through 14 where Moses asks something for himself as the mediator. Verses 15 through 17, where he asked for something for the people of Israel. And then 18 through 23, where he asked something for himself as a man who wants to know God. And so in verse 12, then Moses said to Yahweh, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name. And you have also found favor in my sight. So first, Moses asked for help leading the people of Israel. He said, you've been telling me lead these people. But you have not let me know whom you're going to send with me. And so as we read through this, what we're going to see is that Moses really sets an example for our own faith walk as we seek to do what God has called us to do we should learn to pray in the same way that Moses prayed we should ask God to go with us to give us intimate knowledge of him 
<laughs> well, we'll come from a Mazda back to Egypt. <laughs> well, Moses had learned the hard way when he was in Egypt that it was effortless to do things in his own strength. And we will only be successful when we're not doing things in our own strength, but when God is in it. And that was the lesson that Moses was learning. So whenever we do something that God has called us to do, whatever it is, cross wave, the, the blessing banquet, it can be obeying our parents, serving him, learning how to be married, walking through anything, we need to pray that God will go with us and bless us. Otherwise, our efforts will be in vain. I mean, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So when Moses asked God to go with him, he was even careful to base this request on God's own promises. You see, this is one of the ways that he was growing in his prayer life. He was learning, I want to call it the logic of intercession. That the most persuasive prayers argue from the promises that God has already revealed in his word. In this case, God had told Moses, I have known you by name and you have found favor in my sight. And this means so much more than God simply knew who Moses was. I mean, that would be true of anyone in the sense that God knows everyone by name. But here the Bible is speaking of a special knowledge that's full of love and full of favor. For God to know someone by name means to embrace that person in a special relationship of acceptance and friendship. And so Moses here was an object of covenant grace. God knew him in a loving, saving, electing way. Moses was an object of covenant grace. And think of this in the same way. God knew him and God knows all his children. God knows hope. And God knew all his children. He, he's known us as we were in our mother's womb. This comes straight out of Psalms. So he knew hope before she was even born. He knew us before the foundation of the world. And he says, I have loved you. With an everlasting love. So Moses used this favorable standing with God to ask or maybe even press for some sort of guarantee that God would go with him. You know, earlier Moses had requested God's presence on the basis of his calling, and now he's asking for it on the basis of his acceptance by God. You know, if I have found favor in your sight, he goes on to say, teach me your ways that I may know you and continue to find favor in your sight. And so Moses wanted to know the God who knew him. The psalmist used this same theme when he says, make me know your ways, O Lord, or if you want to 
real translation, make me know your ways, O Yahweh. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. In you I hope all the day. So, see again, Moses is setting the agenda for our own prayer life. To serve God effectively, we need to know his ways. Often I think we want his guidance for specific directions that we have to make. But more than this, we need to know his divine character so that in every day we can live in a way that's pleasing to him. And I think anyone that prays the way that Moses prayed is going to do great things for God. We are called to ask God to, to, to walk with us. We need to pray that he will teach us his ways. We need to seek him more intimately every day. And these are the prayers that God loves to answer. And God did answer these prayers uh, for Moses. And God showed him the way. We know this from what King David wrote in the psalm. Remember King David said, uh, this is out of Psalm 103. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Now at the end of his request, Moses reminded God uh, of his covenant promise to Israel. You know, he was asking God to stay with him as leader of the people, but he was also asking, remember that this nation is your people. So Moses said, I don't want you to just go with me, but go with the whole nation. And God's first reply to Moses was this, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. And I want to point out something as a pause right here is that when God said my presence will go with you, this is a Christophany, an appearance, an appearance really of the pre-incarnate Christ when God is saying this. Earlier in the Exodus, I, we talked about how God was using the phrase, my angel. This is God's own presence that he had promised Moses. What this teaches us here is that in God, who is transcendent, infinitely high above all creation, but he's also close, imminent, gracious, and near his people. It teaches us that God is not an, abs an abstraction, but a personal God who is vitally interested in his people and graciously makes himself known to his people in a time of need. God promised to give Moses rest. Rest from those who opposed him. Deuteronomy says this. Now you will cross the Jordan and live in the land which Yahweh your God is giving you to inherit. And he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you may live in security. Then it will be that the place in which Yahweh your God will choose for his name to dwell. Now, most of the time, not all of the time, when the Bible talks about rest, it's the idea of putting an end to evil, an end to an enemy, an end to a hostility towards you. And so God promised Moses rest. 
Moses never entered the promised land, but Moses would have rest. And there's one thing to point out too here is that this, this phrase, my presence shall go with you, was in the singular. And so at this point, God was saying, I'm going with you, Moses. He had not yet agreed to go up with all of Israel and to go in their midst. And this kind of explains why Moses responded to God the way he did. Because Moses said, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. And so although God had promised to go with Moses, he had not promised to go in the midst of Israel, in the midst of their camp. But the rest of the people needed God just as much as Moses did. And so Moses made a second request to God that, that really clarified everything. He pleaded for God to go with Israel as a nation. See, Moses understood the assurance of God for himself. But he was concerned for God's people. He wanted assurance for the nation of Israel. And basically he was saying, unless God, unless you agree to go with, with us, we're not even interested in going up to the promised land because there's no hope. You know, Moses argued that unless God was present, Israel as a people would never be able to carry out their mission to the world. Again, we can follow that example by making a commitment to not go anywhere, to not move forward. If Jesus Christ is not with us in it. There's nothing in life worth doing. If Jesus Christ is not in it. And so Moses understood what the Exodus was all about. He knew that it was part of God's plan for saving the world. And he knew that the only way Israel would be able to fulfill this plan. Was by having God at the center of what they were doing. This is for us as a church family. God needs to be at the center of everything we are doing. It needs to be in our individual families. God needs to be at the center of our families. And then for us as individuals, God needs to be at the center of our lives. And Moses said then, so he says, indeed, how can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people? Well, Moses was asking a really good question. He was saying, what is it that distinguishes the Israelites from every other nation? It's the presence of God. It was not their land because they didn't have any land yet. It wasn't their wealth because other nations had a whole lot more treasure. It wasn't their culture because do you know what their culture had been for hundreds of years? Slaves. Slavery. Slaves don't have a lot of wealth. Either. Yeah, slaves don't have a lot of wealth. It was not, it's certainly not their righteousness because they couldn't even keep the most basic command not to build a stupid idol. Oh, the only thing the Israelites had going for them was their relationship with God. God was reaching down in his mercy and showing them his love. 
and the other people would only know that he is God and that he was <coughs> their God if he stayed in their midst. And see, this is, this is the great divide that runs down the center of the human race. On one side are the people that make their own way through the world. And whether or not they know it, they belong to the kingdom of Satan. They rely on their own talents. They pursue their own goals. But God is not with them. The other side are those that belong to God by faith. Who depend on God's grace and live for God's glory. God is with them. And what makes the distinction between those who have God and those who don't now is faith in Jesus Christ. Some people have eternal life and some don't. Some people have ultimate peace when they face suffering and death. That's what gives us hope. And some don't. But anyone who wants the comfort of God's presence can have it. Anyone. Moses then said to God, How can it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people remember this. And Moses understood. He said, he's, His phrase in here is interesting. How can I have be known that I have found a favor, I and your people. And somehow Moses understood that his own relationship to God was really linked to the people's salvation. And this question that Moses asked kind of opens up the heart of the gospel. Why did Moses decide to stay with the Israelites? Well, it is because of the covenant promises that he made it has to do with their repentance their contrition but God says here that he saved the Israelites because he was pleased with their mediator I will also do this thing of which you have spoken for you Moses have found favor in my sight and I have known you by name Moses was proven to be an effective mediator. And this is an, another answer to his prayers. He had already persuaded God not to destroy the Israelites, but to lead them to the promised land. He had convinced God to go with him as their guardian and guide. And now God was promising to do what Moses had asked in his second request. Go up in the midst of the people. I mean, God was basically agreeing to go ahead with his plan for the tabernacle and when it was finished to come down in glory and live with his people. And God said this was because he was pleased with Moses. Now, we, we kind of can, can, can look ahead and know that this happened. Uh, just a little bit ahead in Exodus 34, 9, Moses says, Again, if I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, then I pray let the Lord go along in our midst, even though they are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. 
And the people did not deserve God's presence. They were stiff-necked. But in mercy, God was going to give them the opportunity to follow in obedience. God did this so we would understand the basis for our own salvation. The Israelites could not be saved on their own. We cannot be saved because of what we've done. I mean, we have to admit that we are too sinful to earn, to merit our own salvation. Our salvation, now get this, our salvation depends on the pleasure that God takes in our mediator. That is to say, our salvation rests on the delight that God takes in the person of his son and savior, Jesus Christ. This is, this is why the, the God's words, the Father's words are so meaningful when Jesus came up from his baptism. When he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. These are actually linked back to what he says with Moses. They're very similar when he said, Moses, you have found favor in my sight and I have known you. So when God said, this is my beloved son, when he said this about Jesus, he was doing more than simply identifying Jesus as the son. He was expressing his pleasure in the son as the acceptable mediator for our salvation. And these are more than just words. And the father confirmed his pleasure in the son by raising him from the dead. Do you ever get weighed down by sin? Do you ever feel like a failure? <clears throat> I'm starting to count the number of times I've lost my job now. And I'll admit it's frustrating. I feel like I don't measure up to somebody's standard. Well, we don't measure up to the standard of God. So we got to ask the question, how can God ever be pleased with someone like me? Especially when I know he's not pleased with my sin. And you know, the answer is that God is pleased with Jesus. And therefore he is pleased with anyone who trusts in Jesus. This is such a joy. This is our hope. The pleasure that God takes in us is based on the pleasure that he takes in his own beloved son. Jesus is our mediator. He does for us what Moses did for Israel only perfectly. Jesus prays for our salvation on the basis of his standing with God. He asks God to accept us not because we're acceptable, because we're not, but because he is. And Jesus says to the Father, if you're pleased with me, be pleased with my people. And the Father is pleased with Jesus. Now, at this point in, in a conversation with God, I think most people would be satisfied and go, Wow, this is enough. 
I mean, God's basically said, I will do the very thing you have asked. And then Moses says, I pray, God, that you would show me your glory. <laughs> wow. And now we kind of read this and I think something gets lost in translation because it's really a much more humble request than can get translated in our Bibles. I mean, it's very like, uh, Lord, please, if you would, show me your glory. Now, but Moses, what kind of comes off odd about this at first is Moses had already seen something of God's glory. Remember, he had experienced the burning bush, which had blazed with fire and not been consumed. He got another glimpse of God's glory when he and 70 of the elders uh, went up on the mountain uh, and encountered the cloud of God's presence there. And he saw God's glory at the tent of meeting where the pillar of cloud descended from heaven. But somehow Moses knew there was more. Remember when the uh, we covered in Exodus when the elders and Moses saw God. The only thing they actually saw in a sense was the pavement under his feet. And so although he had seen something of God's brilliant majesty, he had not gazed upon God in all his brilliance. And Moses wanted a full revelation of God's glory. He knew that God was an all-glorious God. But he wanted to understand this glory so that it would encourage him to believe that God would really be gracious to a stiff-necked people. And so Moses said, show me your glory. Let me have a glimpse of your divine nature. Let me see the meaning of your great name. And here's God's reply. When Moses says, let me see your glory or show me your glory. God said, I will make my, all of my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. And so when Moses asked to see God's glory, God responds by proclaiming his name. And so God revealed as first and foremost importance his name. And he links that to the phrase, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. So if you grasp the name of God, you have seen his glory. Now, back in Exodus 3, Yahweh had exclaimed these words, I am who I am. And here he gives it this meaning, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. You see how these sentences are built the same way? Back in Exodus 3, I am who I am focuses on the very existence of God. That he is who he is without any outside determination. 
In Exodus 33, the focus is on the gracious action of God, that he does what he does without anything outside of him determining his choices. This is what God reveals about himself when Moses says, let me see your glory. So it is the glory of God to be gracious to whomever he pleases. God, you know, he's con- utterly free from any, I guess I would say, constraints of his creation, us. The preferences of his will, that he alone determines. And, and Exodus here, as we're reading this, this teaches us that this self-determining freedom of God is his name and his glory. And God was willing to reveal this transcendent goodness to Moses. He was willing to announce his sacred name, Yahweh, just as he had done back at the burning bush. And what God was not willing to do was allow Moses to gaze on his glory. In other words, he would not give the prophet a direct perception of his divine being. And the reason for that is very clear. If Moses were to see a complete revelation of God, I think it would be so overwhelming that it would completely destroy him. And God, in his absolute perfection, Moses being a finite fallen creature, and as such he could not see God and live. So in order to protect Moses from any deadly exposure to his radiant glory, God made some special arrangements. He said, behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about when my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So Moses was not allowed to look God in the face, but only see a fleeting glimpse of the back of his glory. God said that as his glory passed by, he would cover Moses with his hand. And there was a place in the rock where Moses could hide. There he would be under the shadow of God's care. God would shield him from his radiant glory that would bring judgment. To put it in a slightly different way, God was protecting Moses from God. And it's important to see this because people also sometimes think of like being under the shadow of God's hand is a image from the from a comfort of the trials of life. But here, the protection that God has given is protection from the greatness of his glory. And and what we see here is God is working out a way of salvation that allows us to know him without being destroyed. We need this protection, not because of any 
deficiency in God, but we need this protection because of his absolute perfection. The glory of God is more than any mere mortal can bear. So this is the gospel truth. We need protection from the wrath of God. And the glory of the gospel is that God also provided that protection. You know, wanting to know God. Job expressed a longing to know God. King David expressed a longing to know God. King David said, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. This is something I think human beings have longed and longed for. We want to see God so we can know what he actually is. And God revealed himself partially to Moses. And, but God revealed himself to Moses in a veiled way. I guess I would say he adjusted himself to a form that Moses could survive. But in our case, the adjusted presence of God is much clearer. Because we have a better revelation of God in Jesus we can see God you know there's a story in the disciples where one of the story in the gospel where one of the disciples said to Jesus Lord show us the father and it'll be enough for us and and I guess I can imagine a little bit of frustration in Jesus's voice because uh, he says have I been with y'all so long and have you not come to know me? He's addressing Philip here. Philip, uh, let me explain it to you. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you come to me and say, show me the Father? The Father and the Son are one. Jesus is God every bit as much as the Father is God. So to know him is to know God. To love him is to love God. And I, I can imagine the disciples reflecting on this and really amazed to discover that they had been seeing God all along. Well, I think that kind of ties in to the Christmas season because we get to experience something that Moses didn't. And the people living at the time of Jesus got to experience something. John says this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt here means literally tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. And what does it say? And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. And then it reminds us, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained to him. John, 
comes talking about Jesus and saying that the glory of God that Moses was asking for has been revealed in Jesus. Jesus Christ, God manifest in flesh. So to know Jesus then is to know the God of glory. When, when Jesus grew up, when God became a man, those who saw Jesus from the time of the baby in the manger, they had a fuller experience of God's glory than Moses could ever imagine. I think in one way you might want to say the, the, the incarnation revealed God in a safe mode for us. Uh, by the incarnation, think about it, by the incarnation, just as here in Exodus 33, God was protecting man from God. The incarnation was God's provision for sinners to be saved. This is the story of the gospel. This is why learning through Exodus, why passages like Exodus 33 are so important. The more we see of Jesus, the more we see of God. To see God, to perceive his divine attributes and understand his salvation. And of course, the way we come to do this is by studying more, spending more time in the Word. But you know what excites me as well and what gives me hope? Is that one day we will literally be able to see Jesus. 1 Corinthians says, Now we see but a poor reflection in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face so when we've been raised to glory we will be able to bear the sight of Christ in his glory without being destroyed I know in the heart of every believer there's a yearning unsatisfied as it is right now to see this promise fulfilled There's more, far more than, than we can comprehend as we long to gaze upon the face of Christ. But in the meantime, we need to pray and ask God to show us as much of his glory here as we can bear. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that, that we may come to a deeper, deeper understanding of your glory and how that glory is revealed in Christ. May we learn to pray the way that Moses prayed. Teach us your ways, that we may walk in them. May we desire a deeper deeper presence with you and not go anywhere without it. Thank you, Lord, that a little baby in a manger 
that Jesus Christ tabernacled with us and provided the way of salvation. Thank you, Father, for this word. Amen.